Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a podcast from the Smart Material Collective, made by nerds, funded by the listeners. Hello and welcome to Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet, the only podcast that uses science and tech to answer the questions that you really have. Things like why is the sky blue, what's up with trees, and why haven't we had consistent like episodes being released even though you said that was going to happen. Like what the fuck Alex? And to which my response would be, I've had a lot of anxiety and fuck you, this is free. <laughs> it's true, it's right. free. Uh, I'm your host, Alex Lathbridge. I am a person who's just submitted his thesis, you know, getting that PhD in biology and computational biochemistry and all that good shit. And, you know, I'm pretty gassed. I'm, no one can tell me nothing. Uh, in the studio with me today is Suhail Patel. Suhail is an amazing journalist. He makes brilliant videos for the BBC. And today he's producing. So if the audio quality is off, it's his fucking fault. It's true. <laughs> prepare yourself folks (laughs) this is gonna be a wild ride (laughs) literally peaks and troughs yeah and oh fuck's sake and joining us in the studio today we have a fantastic a phenomenal a what's another word that starts with a first sound like you're an author you should know like fur oh yeah but i'm a hungover author remember (laughs) all right Third F, functional. Yes. We have a functional guest. Moderately functional. Moderately. <laughs> Elijah Lawal. Thank you, Elijah. You are an author. Yes. Um, you are six foot four. Four, damn. All right. You're like me if I was on OkCupid or Tinder. And... Like you've turned up, even though you're a little bit hungover. I'm yeah. not. I, I actually really appreciate that because what well, it's like a Sunday, yeah. and you've trekked into Central London to be with, let's say, the bottom fifty percent of the podcast team. Oh <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah. no, no, no! I would say top fifty percent. Cool. For sure. I, I didn't for want to sure. say it. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I would humbly agree with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm gonna start with you, Elijah. What are you up to this week? Why are you hungover first and foremost? So to work backwards. Yeah. Um this book took an entire pretty much four years of my life. And ever since writing it um and finishing it, I've just rediscovered my social life. And so every night whenever people are like, Oh hey, do you want to go for a drink? The answer is always yes. It's <laughs> it's never no, I've got this book to write. It's yeah, I fuck all else to do, so let's do it. <laughs> so when did you finish that? Um, so the book came out in June and all of the edits were done pretty much um, for January. 
Okay, okay. So yeah. that's from January to now. All right. So yeah. you're like tapering off, whereas <laughs> yeah. I've just submitted my thesis. This is the first time I've properly oh, been out. You're in for a while, so, guide. So, so, so right now you're getting full force, Alex. All right. Yeah. All right. And because <clears throat> the studio that we are currently in, in the building we are currently in, I should not be drinking. Um, you know, I'm coming in with a full, like, gregarious energy. I like right? it. That's where I'm at right now. So. Oh, yeah. You're going to enjoy this. I can't I'm wait. I'm enjoying it like I always do. Oh, yeah. I've, I've got some of that cool Coca-Cola that tastes fresh. What is this noise, Alex? Oh, uh, what? Noise? I've never had anyone make noise on you mix. You forbidden. So, hey, what have you been up to this week, man? Uh, what have been up to? Just the usual, man. It was the London Fashion Week this week. Ooh. So, uh, there was, I, was, I was hired to film a party and there were many beautiful people there. Yeah. Naturally, I stood out. Oh, <laughs> as the most beautiful one of all. Oh, this guy. This guy. New Alex, host. Alex yeah. would never say that. He would just laugh uh, in agreement. But um, yeah, man, just running some game, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Just be like, yo, do you like cats? You know, like casual, casual pickup lines. Yeah. Um, do you like cats? Works every time. Really? No, not really. <laughs> Anyways, that's my week. Did you? How did it end up? Yeah, it went well, man. I yeah. got, some, got some Instagram. Phone <laughs> numbers. Did you get phone numbers? Yeah. Did you get I got digits? one phone number. Yeah, yeah. but it's American one, so it's confusing. <laughs> <laughs> What's the area code? <laughs> yes. It's showing up, damn it. It's, it's better. At least at least it's that, that's like a, what, America's plus one. You can get a plus two, yeah. three, three number. You would know about yeah. this. Story, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. My girlfriend's American. Yeah. So plus one, zero, zero, one. There you go. Uh, you've just, yeah. It's, right. it's fine in the end. She likes cats, but she's allergic to cats. So, <laughs> so <laughs> stay away from her, that's basically. The, that's the human condition. You lose one where you can't have. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what are you doing? So I'm just saying you've gone from like you going to the London Fashion Week, doing freelance work and ending up trying to hit on women. No, no. No, you didn't try they and were, hit They were hitting on me. Shut up. <laughs> Listen, Alex, this might surprise you, but I'm very desirable catch. <laughs> <laughs> You're just looking at me like that. No. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the reason why we're actually here... <laughs> Now, Elijah, we have alluded to the fact that you've written some sort of document. Um, you've written a book, haven't yes. you? It's, it's The Clapback, A Guide to Calling Out Racist Stereotypes, you know? Mm. It spoke something true into me. Like, you you took me through my own life. <laughs> but like it was like having a big brother. Oh, wow. Like, let you great. come through, like, every day. Be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Someone's going to call you a nigger from a car. Mm. But don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> Just pretend in your head they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> Just to say that, that's pretty deep. That was one of, that was a very extreme moment in no, my no, life. No, no, no. I have it. It's one of the first things right, about a month ago that I put down. All right, let's see if I can find it. I can't find it word for word, mm. but all right, someone, I'm narrating your own life. No, yeah, please, yeah. please yeah. go for it. All right. So my guy, you've just come back from Nigeria. Mm -hmm. So from the age of what, four to six, 15? Uh, four to 14. Okay, you know, that's really weird how I'm telling you your life. If there was like a kid, you'd be so creeped out. I was just like, oh my God, this guy's a stalker. <laughs> but you know, he's just been saying nice things about my book, so stalk on. <laughs> you've come back and like, what, three dudes in a car. Mm -hmm. Like one guy comes out, calls you a nigger. Mm -hmm. And you turn around like, Damn, I feel bad for whoever's a nigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, wow, who's, who's that that's, nigger that day? That's yeah, some yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so you had that happen. Yeah. And then, and then, not only that, yeah. So someone called him that. 
he turns around and he's like, because my man at that point, he's mm. pious. He's humble. <laughs> right, my guy's just come back from Nigeria. He's done full you know, Sunday worship every exactly, day. Mega yeah. church. You know what my guy wants to be? He wants the very, not frugal. He wants the, the very, what's that word when you have lots of money? All right. The very bountiful mm. job of what? Connecting people to God. He wanted to be a pastor. Yeah. Didn't you? I did. Like, yeah. Praise the Lord. Praise yeah, that's what, Jesus. That's what he wanted. That's what he wanted. Yeah. And in that moment, he turned his back. Right? <laughs> Turn this back on the gospel. The idea of turning the other cheek, no. <laughs> because in his head, he he, he brought brimstone down. <laughs> he was like, I want to kill everyone in that car. Actually, they got to call me a nigger. I want him to survive just long enough for me to go over it to him and be like, I ain't your nigger. <laughs> and then stuff him out. And my, my guy wants to connect people to God. <laughs> This is what racism does to you, man. <laughs> this is what it does to you. It turns you crazy. Shit, man. That's so, deep. so that's one sort of quote from the book. This is the kind of person you are. <laughs> A man who can turn away from God very quick. What inspired you to write this book? Um, for me, it was trying to understand where all these stereotypes come from. Um, understanding whether or not they're real, how they've been perpetuated in media, in all of our narratives, and then equip black people to be able to push back or clap back on them, but then also to help other people who aren't black understand that what just because of what they hear or what they see in the media, in the newspapers is so prevalent, that's not our culture, that's not who we are. And so like one of the first things, you know, I'm transitioned from like joke, joke, Alex to like, ha, let's do this, Alex. <laughs> like one of the first things you sort of wrote about um, is the idea that it takes a lot of strength and a lot of emotional energy mm. to educate people. I mean, did you feel that in any way in writing this book? A little bit, um, because every time I would write a chapter and be thinking about, oh, I could be playing football or watching football or hanging with my friends and just going, oh God, and I'm just doing this work for people who should really just go and do it themselves. That was very tiring, but I was just so passionate about this. Um, and I truly believed at the time um, that it's something that is really, really needed. And then when the book came out and it got so much support, that belief just tripled. You know, I was just thinking, I, I never in my wildest dreams did I think the book would be what it is, but I knew it was something and that just kept me going. There's some really good reviews here, actually. I'm looking on Amazon. <laughs> As you know, they're all 100% um, accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, people really enjoyed your book. Um, oh, I'm glad. It's really interesting. I haven't had a, actually a chance to read it, but um, I mean, some of the things you're talking about, for example, like, you know, someone swearing from you at you outside a car, mm. in a car, rather, you know, someone did that to me once. I was walking to school. Someone shouted out, Oi, you packy! Mm -hmm. Like that, yeah? Proper gaze in that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, threw an egg at me. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> but the funniest thing is the egg hit me quite hard. <laughs> Didn't break. It just fell on the floor. And I was like, I don't know why, but I just like, the joke's on you. you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Your evil plan has failed. As well, yeah, no. I mean, this is the kind of ridiculousness of race. Like, how... How terrible must your day be going mm. to think, oh, actually, what's going to make me feel better is to yell a racial slur at someone whose life does not affect me at all. Mm. Like, how 
terrible is your life going that that's what's going to bring you joy or mm. just like why i don't understand why is that something mm. you think yeah i'm gonna do today there's, there's a saying actually and i don't know if it applies to every case but for me it has a lot of poignancy it's, it's the saying a small man must cut off the heads of others to mm. make himself feel tall and i think it comes from a place of insecurity you know economic insecurity you know insecurity about culture things like that so there's a lot of different reasons isn't it involved. yeah absolutely and it's that kind of false narrative mm. that gets told that makes people think that way people are told mm. you know your life is terrible because of immigrants your life is terrible because of people of color and you know these people are bringing crime to your community and so you wake up thinking there is crime in my community my life is not what i thought it would be mm. oh yeah maybe it's true and it's a simple it's a simple way of looking at the world isn't it absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. all right so you've come back from nigeria mm -hmm. and uh, you're in school yeah mm -hmm. And uh, you want to do water polo, isn't that right? <laughs> My guy's come back from Nigeria and he's like, you know what, I missed out there. I'm assuming you're in boarding school. No, I, w I was kind of in a mix. It was like a was boarding. It international? It was a military school. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what my mom like, said. If I didn't do well, my GCSEs, I'd go to one of those. Yeah, of course. That was what that was what they used to for for your listeners who may not uh, either know or have um, like an African background. That's just that was the threat. That was the ultimate threat. We're gonna send you back home to a military school. Wait, so, 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 wait, wait, wait. You, you were there from four to what did you, you <laughs> What did you do? <laughs> no, my um. So shortly after I was born, my dad got a really good job. Um, in in Nigeria so he he went and then I stayed with with my mom um and my younger sister and then my mom then went to join him and so it was me and my sister for a while and then eventually they, they were like look we've, we've got to be a family so yeah I wasn't I wasn't a naughty for you <laughs> I was gonna say you have to be really bad at age four <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> sorry I don't care about school fees you're going to that you're going to school yeah yeah but so, then we didn't have water polo so yeah. so you've come back yeah to the UK and you're like, ah, oh, okay, cool. Let me ingratiate myself in these people again. Mm -hmm. I want to do water polo. And you fall into like that first stereotype, I mm -hmm. guess, from parents or from your family, your aunt mm -hmm. and, you know, externally in society, the idea that black people can't swim. Yeah. So narrate that for us, explain <laughs> what happened. It, it was, so, it was so weird. I was, I was very, and still am a very introspective person. So when I was... <laughs> faced with these kind of stereotypes of, you know, you want to swim, you want to do water polo, but black people can't swim. My number one rationale, well, my number one thought was, we can't, that's weird, I can. So <laughs> like what, what's, what's going on, that was going on here. And it was so, it was just so weird that this was just something that my aunt 100% believed, like my schoolmates 100% believed. And I was just like, why? Um, and, if anything, that gave me the drive to, <laughs> to want to do it even more, to just go, mm. no, fuck you. I should be able to do whatever the hell I want. Um, and it was only when I grew up that I started to understand why this became a huge stereotype. And, you know, I mean, like you're a scientist. Ostensibly. The, <laughs> the very notion that the color of your skin has anything to do with the physical properties of being able to float in water is just ridiculous. I think it's really interesting, you know, throughout the years, that first thing you've heard of, 
are black people can't swim because you said sort of bone density. Mm, yeah, you know, yeah. Our bones are too dense because we're, you know, that too physical. Yep. You know, we're just so strong physically. I'm, I'm tensing right now, but no one can tell. Uh, not because- <laughs> it's, not, it's quite impressive. Yeah, yeah I was gonna say. <laughs> this isn't the like, shirt is bulging. <laughs> almost like, ripping. Almost, <laughs> that's my stripping sound. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we've got a Black Hawk situation. <laughs> <laughs> All of you. <laughs> Elijah, I'm like, we've chatted for like 20 minutes. I feel like I know you well enough. <laughs> so shut the fuck up. <laughs> no, but, but you know, you hear that bone density thing and mm. you hear, you know, they say that and they say, with so much force and so much belief, say it with yeah. your chest. And you know, I've, I've even had people in my family say, oh no, I actually, I know I've watched YouTube videos it's because of bone density and that. And like, how did that idea come up? Like how does that and you know, the other ideas mm. that you mentioned sort of come up? So the swimming thing is actually, um, it's very interesting. The, the moments in time where swimming really took off as a leisure activity, was kind of um, particularly in the states was after the second world war and where there was a lot of economic re recovery and so a lot of people just had um, disposable income and so swimming became a pastime now the tricky thing for people of color um, particularly black people was that was slap bang in one of the most racist periods of, of <laughs> modern history so black people were just not allowed to do things that white people uh, were doing and swimming was one of them. In fact, there there was, and, and there's actually a picture in the book of um, a, uh, a motel owner pouring acid into the swimming pool because there are black people in there. Um, and again, this is what we're talking 60s. This happened last year where there was just a black family swimming and um, this white lady came up to them and just said, you know, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And so that kind of became a, a, a systemic thing because if I can't swim and I'm not allowed to swim, I'm least like, I'm less likely to talk to my children about it, take them swimming, they're not as likely to do it. And so it, it passed on. The second reason was, again, it was during one of the worst uh, periods of economic uh, balance and equality um, between black people and white people. And the reality of the situation was black people just didn't have enough disposable income to go, oh, I'm going to, um, I'm going to spend my money taking my kids to like a leisure center. It's like, no, we need food. Um, and so again, culturally and societally that just passed on. The bone density thing is just based on that stereotype, as you mentioned, of us just being like big and strong and only useful for like hard labor. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's a crazy mindfuck to tell you that you're bigger and stronger <laughs> so that you could serve someone else. That's the thing that yeah. like, oh, we're gonna hold you down because you're just too strong. Yeah, exactly. Like, but if that makes sense, shouldn't I be fucking you up right now? Exactly, <laughs> it's the ultimate negging. It is the ultimate negging. You're, you're just too strong for this place, bye. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the things that we started to see was black people excelled in sports where maybe you don't need a lot of money. So mm. football, you just need to buy a football. Lots of black people, um, lots of Latin people as well used to play football with their feet. Um, the first Olympic uh, winner was a guy called Bebe Bikila from Kenya in 1960. He ran barefoot because mm. he was just like, well, I, like I, 
this is like this is just what I'm gonna do. <laughs> this is, like I can't afford your fancy tracks, so I'm just gonna do that. And so we tended to excel more in sports where you didn't need a lot of money. So I find yeah, so you're, it's interesting that a lot of stereotypes are based in factors which aren't inherently linked to race. Mm. But it's it's other things like so like socioeconomic circumstances, but the two become interlinked and. It's just harder to unpack that, isn't it, for people? It's easier for people to think. Yeah, you know, black people are inherently different, Asian people are inherently different. Mm. But it's you know, it's like anything. It's the nuance behind it and the detail of the actual the reality, the the facts. Yeah. Um, no, and and the moment you start to help people understand that race is, or like it's just an artificial construct. Mm. It is not. Like, you, you know, we have the same biological, um, um, like we have the same organs. We have ev everything you have, I have, even though we're of a different race. I don't have a lot to be honest. So. <laughs> but, you know, you've got two eyes, a nose, a mouth, two ears, a brain, a circulatory True. system, an immune system, a digestive system. Mm. All right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Anatomy. <laughs> I forgot we've got, we've got a biologist here. Um, I've also got... Charizard shiny. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't have, but I will get working on that. <laughs> Mind, damn it. <laughs> but I think what really fascinated me about not just um, sort of the swimming thing, but in everything else, is the idea that once people have cottoned onto an idea, say cottoned on, latched onto this idea of a stereotype, mm. as soon as you disprove it, they'll try and find another one. So in regards to swimming, you talk about bone density. You know, if you fight back against that one, they then start talking about um, the fact that black people apparently breathe out through our skin. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. if we swim, um, we won't be able to like put out our carbon dioxide and we might suffocate. And then when you're like, well, that's stupid. It's then, oh, but you know, the, your pores will close and then, you know, other bad things might happen to you. And you mentioned it's, it's like the idea that fear can be passed down genetically. That's the thing that people talk about and it's mm. sort of very contested, but it, it's one of those ideas that I think, like you mentioned, it's these stereotypes, they're a product of their time. Mm -hmm. So once these stereotypes from the sixties go and, but you still want to keep to the idea of, you know, black people can't swim it's then you become, there's a new thing. Oh, this reason it's, it's genetics of fear and slavery. The slavery genes been passed down and stuff. Yeah. And so it becomes really very difficult to work with because, you know, imagine hundred years time, they can be like, well, quantumly, yeah. uh, <laughs> they can't swim quantum, you know, whatever. -ly. Yeah. I mean the, uh, and you, you did a show about, um, Angela Sani's, um, lovely Shit, book. My yeah. guy fucking listens. <laughs> <laughs> Even I ain't listening. To why, why are you so surprised? No, no. Guests, sometimes guests come on here. Guests that whose episodes have not been released, <laughs> who have not listened to this show. Oh, wow. No, yeah. no, I, I listen. I'm, I'm a huge fan, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, she she talks about the, the the genetic factor as well, and I think to to your point is people find it very difficult to let things go, especially things that they have believed for their entire life, right? I mean, you know, as scientists, can you remember like the massive like palaver when it was like Pluto's no longer a planet? People <laughs> were like, oh shit, what are we gonna do now? Pluto's no longer a planet. It's like, how did that affect your life in any way, shape or form? Mm. Dramatically. I know. 
was that your child blind to go? <laughs> like, do you think it was a plan? Yeah, yeah. I was deeply devastated. <laughs> many, many sorrowful evenings. Oh, well, I, I think they're calling it a dwarf planet now, so it's still. Worse. Now, listen, you're making a point. Um, <laughs> before I really interjected with a bad joke. No, 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 it's okay. But um, uh, pretty similar, actually. Mm. Can you remember the BuzzFeed quiz where it was like, is this dress blue or gold? Mm. And everyone was like, no, it's blue. How can you not see it's blue? No, it's gold. So it's really hard for people to let go of their pre-assumptions. Mm. I think, as Angela points out in her book, the moment you can accept that those preconceptions were they were created from a racist point of view, then you can start to let things go a little bit more because you go, that was reflective of that thinking at that time. We've moved on. We are much better people now. So let's start reflecting a new reality. Um, and just a sort of final note on, on the genetics. It, it's, it's so weird. There is only one human race. There is homo sapiens. That's, that's all there is. Like, a, a golden, a white golden retriever and a brown golden retriever. I swear to God, if you stack on that table. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so you were saying there's one human race. There's one human race. I'm emphatically making my point. There's um, one human race. Whereas, you know, for other animals, you've got mm. like different species of, of the animals, different genuses of the animals. Whereas mm. for us, it's just one human race. And once you can wrap your head around that, you start to understand actually the things that are different about us are just artificial most of the time mm. mm -hmm. but to take genetics and bounce onto that new subject mm. um it's something that i'm very close to with this course, um yeah. the idea of not just genetics um music mm. and dancing yeah. you see that little segue there i do like <laughs> yeah, it you <laughs> um you know there are positive stereotypes mm -hmm. you know, apart from the positive stereotypes you talk about these ones as well the so the positive stereotype the idea that black people are very very good at dancing and have rhythm and stuff so yeah have you ever had that happen to you? Has anyone ever come up to you and said, hey, you must be great at dancing. Go in there, dance, well, dance for me. Not so explicitly, but there, you know, are situations where, you know, we'll be, when I was younger and used to go to more clubs than I do now, where it'd just be a case of, you know, oh, like this type of music, like hip hop and R&B is playing. So I expect you to kind of be on the dance floor or, you know, you'd be with a group of friends and so on and say, oh, like Elijah, drop a beat. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> you sing opera then, you know? It's like, it's as ridiculous as, you know, if you're in a group of friends and one was white and you're saying, well, well, most opera singers are white. So you start singing opera. I love opera. I mean, Personally. who doesn't? Should I sing a song? Alex? You're mixing. <laughs> if you sing a song. I'm joking. I'll, I'll save it for later. Thank you. <laughs> These ideas of positive stereotypes. And mm. I think one that I'm going to say connects perhaps both of us is in sort of sex. Mm -hmm. What would you say one of the biggest stereotypes is when it comes to black men? Um, that black men are well endowed. And so, you know, that's a positive stereotype because of course you're just like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, if that's what you're thinking, then sure, that's fine. But then when you start to understand the origins of this stereotype, it was based very much on racism and really, really terrible racism. You know, uh, black people used to be lynched uh, and, and they'd take their penises often and stuff them in their mouth while they were, were hanging. And it was just based on this idea that, you know, black men were just hypersexual. And so, 
you know, they had, white women had to be careful not to go anywhere near them because they were like so hypersexual and animalistic. Um, and we see that going from just something that ra racist people used to believe into politics. So in 1922, when uh, anti-lynching anti bill was being discussed, uh, one of the Republican uh, senators was saying, well, you know, how are we going to keep all these black hypersexualized black men in check? In 2018, the governor from Maine was saying, you know, how are we going to keep all these black criminals out of our city that are coming in and impregnating all of the nice white women? And I, I, obviously I can't speak for Americans, but I've never been hanging out with my boys and gone, should we just go impregnate some white women today? Do you know what I mean? It's like, that's just not, oh, it's geez. not, it's not a thing not that we do. No. no, like guys, let's just dip into Maine real quick. <laughs> yeah, <let's> do it. <laughs> impregnate some white people and then like come back. Like that's not a thing. That that's one way to end racism. <laughs> <laughs> just slow and active breathing. Just like all, over the years. <laughs> well, thank you. Because that takes me into, nicely into my next point. Yeah. Interracial dating. Interracial. <laughs> dating yes because you you talk a lot about it in here and i mm. feel as though it's something that isn't talked about or i say isn't talked about it is in books that i haven't read um in very very <laughs> academic books mm. that i'm probably not going to read but very much online you know from both sides the idea that interracial dating is not rotten there's a lot of connotations both positive and negative mm. um but most predominantly negative and the reason i really clicked with this is because yeah as a kid, I always got, oh, do you like black girls or white girls? Do you mm -hmm. prefer black girls of or white course, girls? Yeah, yeah. Any, I remember being in my cousin's flat in Stock, in, yeah, in Stockwell. I remember because the carpet was like three centimeters deep, my feet, yeah, yeah one of those ones, but my feet were sinking into the carpet and my cousin would be like, oh, so you prefer black girls or white girls? And I'm there like, look, I'm eight. <laughs> I know, I like toys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm really into Angel Delight right now. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> but you know, you had that. And mm. I feel as though it's a connection that, um, I guess more and more black men, black women, um, even I guess Asian men. I don't know how you date, how it works for you guys. Are you are you guys mm. like, oh hey, date white women or don't wait white women, you're a traitor or something. I, I, I feel that. I feel again there's a hierarchy of race and it's based on this history of rape, colonialism and racism. Mm. Um and you know, it would be like Asians obviously Asian parents want you to date other Asians, mm -hmm. which is the general stereotype. And then if if that's not possible then white people mm. basically and then I've dated a lot of black women in the past mm. and that's been very controversial because there's still that element of, you know, like you're saying, racism and ingrained stereotypes. Yeah. Uh, even in Asian cultures, we're BME as well, right? So, yeah, no, absolutely. A lot of the stereotypes sometimes mm. come from our own communities. Yeah. And yeah, when you're gro growing up, there was this, you had to choose, you had to pick a side. Mm. And I was just like, Arsenal, I'm, Tottenham, go. Well, yeah, exactly. And I was just like, I'm dating whoever likes me. I, I don't. I, I feel like you think I have a choice. Where I'm just like, no, go away, go away, get off me. I'm yeah. Sexy, yeah. Let's, let's bounce back because uh, that was one of the first things I read. Like, okay, so with this book, I did half of it in like audiobook and mm. the other half reading. And one point where I transitioned from audiobook from reading to the audiobook was. Um, 
when you thought about your perfect chat up line with regards to interracial dating, what was your perfect chat up line? Oh, um, I'm going to say it because I... Okay, just say, what's your perfect chat up line? <laughs> it was the pancake thing, right? <laughs> you say it's too embarrassing for me. All right, let Listen, me... I'm going to take notes right now. Let me, <laughs> let me, let me find I'm ready. This. Let me see if I can find this pickup line. Because I laughed so hard. I think it was something like, are, are you nice and do you like pancakes? <laughs> that is the greatest pickup line I've ever heard. So um, it's not just that. <clears throat> It's when it fuck me. There were two because there's one. Oh, there's one. oh, the the weird genetic thing. Whoa, what is it? <laughs> so you, there's this kind of like stereotypes around like mixed race people, and apparently like you know mixed race people have like better better genes, mm. uh, which of course is stupid because we've talked about race being <laughs> nothing other than Alex is like what? Alex no? is flexing. <laughs> You've seen your DNA results. You know the truth. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it just, I can't remember what it was word for word. And But it's just like, it's just this stupid stereotype of, mm. you know, mm. it, heterogeneous genes being better than homogeneous. Like it's a very, it's a, I made a stupid science joke, which that's what, that's what Alex is probably the only person. You realize this is a science, science comedy tech podcast. That's exactly what we need. Yeah. <laughs> Let me see if I can find it. Cause Alex, I, find the science joke. Look, I, find, I had it a second ago and then I left. Oh yeah. Boom. So. There is no biological reason why one race would prefer uh, one over the other, least of all, uh, least of all in preference for their own. In fact, we're more likely to be biologically drawn to sexual partners that are different from us for the purposes of procreation, because the mix of heterogeneous uh, genes will result in stronger offspring with better resistance to the disease. But the, th the thing is, um, and, and this is why it's kind of, uh, again, when you explain a joke, it, it becomes less funny. <laughs> you say you've listened to this podcast. <laughs> Let me explain that point once again in greater detail. Um, yeah, this notion that it, the whole thing about the, the book, that, um, that chapter actually, it was based around this whole idea of you don't actually get to choose who you're attracted to. Like you think you do, but all of these things that are happening, not only at a biological level, but at a psychological level is your brain is making these decisions for you and you're just kind of following that decision. Like you don't wake up one day and decide, I'm going to like ice cream. Like that doesn't happen. Like you just like ice cream and go, okay, this is a thing that I like now. Mm. So for you to then go, oh, well, you know what? I've just, it's a conscious decision for me that I don't like ice cream. Like mm. that, these are not things that you're determining. So my whole point with that was just like, if you like someone, why does something as insignificant as how tall they are, how short they are, the color of their skin, like why should that stop you from dismissing an entire race of of those people mm. um i find that very peculiar he it says peculiar. as a six foot floor black man <laughs> with glowing skin <laughs> and a dark complexion it's just ridiculous <laughs> but, but the thing is i i would not like someone to be attracted to me because of that like i wouldn't want someone to be attracted to me just because i'm black because mm. i am so much more than just a black man mm. i you know i'm intelligent i'm kind i'm caring i'm not 
trying to thirst trap anyone. Yeah, but, we, but we understand. As in, as in you become sexualized. Exactly. In, in a way that it's slightly uncomfortable, isn't it? Mm. It's uh, so uncomfortable. Mm, and mm. there's a, a quote that I said there, like whenever women would come to me, especially women who are, who are white would come to me and be like, oh, I've never dated a black man before. I'm always like, neither have I. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> like, neither have I so what now <laughs> I, see, I had a girl come up to me she was like oh you know uh, she was eating cereal with a teaspoon I got pissed off anyway because <laughs> she was in our uni house for no reason mm. eating cereal, cereal with a teaspoon she put it in her mouth like seductively apparently <laughs> I was like I've never been with a black man before and they're like yeah neither have I neither, so. neither have I I, <laughs> I, just, guess, I guess we've got that exactly <laughs> it's, it's so weird but then you uh, you get so you get that so often you know particularly actually people who who are mixed race as well, they get that as well because sometimes, because they'll have different features. So um, my friend is, she's um, dark skin, but she's got like light green eyes. Yeah. And just every, like all guys would ever say to her is like, wow, your eyes are so like, okay, yeah, I've got eyes, fine. So does most people, chill out. Now talk to me about the things that I do. Like I'm a professional, I'm great at work. I'm So yeah, it's, that's uh, one of those, positive stereotypes that gets flipped on its head. I think for me, this I, I think the thing with your book and what I quite liked about it is that you don't just explore, you don't just go from the outside. So, you know, white people and people outside the black community um, putting stereotypes um, on us and sort of, let's say, attacking on us, but you also look at how things work within the community. I wanted to... One second, sorry. When I say the black community, like I'm talking about the black UK, we can't speak... Oh, you're a spokesperson for all black people, right? <laughs> yeah. Since writing this book, yeah. Okay, cool. Just How so do I apply for this position? <laughs> I feel as though your skill set might be better used. Um, what? It's okay. <laughs> um, you're right. I, I did want to look at the stereotypes that we have about ourselves because it's easy to look outside the community and say this is how these things hurt us but sometimes we need to look within our own community and you know within our commu community the patriarchy is still very very much real and as you sort of alluded to this whole idea that a black woman has to date a black man has to hold him down has to be like you know kind of maternal to him and have to be secondary to his his views is just ridiculous. You know, black women should be able to date whoever the hell they, they want to date. And I think within our community as well, not that it's, you know, more prevalent in our community than any other community, but we can't, one of my, one of my major bugbears is black people criticizing other black people or putting other black people in a specific box. Because I, I think we get enough of it from outside. Like, why are we doing it to ourselves? Why are we doing it to each other? We've got other people from other communities telling us who we can't date and where we should be and, and where we fit in and where we belong. Why won't we, we give ourselves that freedom for our own community to do that? That's truly how we become free, empowering ourselves and then also fighting the racism from, from, from outside. I think if we don't empower ourselves, we don't lift each other up as well, mm. as well as, you know, telling truth to power from the other communities, then I feel like we're, we're missing a step if we don't do that. Absolutely, so yeah. I'm very supportive of the black community. It takes a lot for me to criticize another 
black person. <laughs> what I've, a bit that I've really enjoyed is that you, you have like a quiz at the start <laughs> of each chapter. Yeah. You sort of say, it's like, you know, it's like one of those maths books that you used to get and never do. Um, <laughs> how the fuck I have a PhD, I don't know. Um, you know, and in one of them, you're talking about uh, the percentage of people um, who are immigrants in the country mm-hmm. and um, the actual value and people in the UK think it's much, much higher than it actually is. Yeah. So um, people think it's 24%. It's actually 15. It's actually 13. 13. Wow. Oh. Okay. I know. I haven't written this in a while. <laughs> no, but but um, how do you feel? Because um, you're how old now? 35 tomorrow. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, happy birthday in advance. Yeah. Hey. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday. Oh, you get to go into it thinking about, oh, shit, I just had to do fucking to call my agent. <laughs> ah, I need to get PR on this. I know I work PR on Google, but damn, I need to get, get rid of this. Yeah. You know, um, with immigration, immigration is such a big topic now. Mm. And what... I think this book's really good because the the perspective you have as someone who has come from immigrants, who, I mean, I'd call you an immigrant yourself. Oh, I mean, you did time. You had the time. You were military boarding school. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm not, I'm not implicitly saying that going to school in West Africa is bad. What I'm saying is military boarding school. <laughs> if you're a military boarding school, you're a bad kid. <laughs> but um, look at me now. I'm super wholesome and lovely and <laughs> respectful. <laughs> um, and so how, when you're seeing the rise of what we have now, mm. how are you, I guess, how are you experiencing it? What are your experiences with, I guess, the the discourse around immigration now? And, you know, Sahel, you as a journalist, I think mm. both of you have been talking about similar things and how the UK actually views immigrants and immigration, the relationship between them. I was wondering what your thoughts were sort of based on what you're saying in the book about it. Yeah. So... It is perfectly legitimate to have a liberal conversation or a conservative conversation about immigration. You know, if we said we were going to take in three million immigrants or or refugees, which is usually um, um, how a lot of the topic around immigration has started recently, uh, and we take more and you're pro that, then you can have a liberal conversation. In your anti that, you can have a conservative conversation. It's perfectly legitimate to have that. What is really problematic today is that the conversations that we're having are just based on lies. They're based on this notion that immigrants are taking all our welfare and taking all our jobs. Like, well, are they doing what? Which one are they doing? Are they taking your jobs and taking your welfare? Um, especially people in like real professional settings who say immigrants are taking your job. And I say, when has a HR manager ever come to you and say, oh, I'm sorry, we've got to, we've got to let you go. We just saw this immigrant and he's, we've just got to give them your job. Like it's just based on lies. Um, and even if you're not in this professional setting, um, we I hear a lot from people who are plumbers. They're like, oh, immigrants come in, they do the jobs for cheaper and then I'm losing my business. And I said, well, would you still lose your business if a white British person offered services for cheaper? And they'll say, yes. So I say, your problem's not with immigration, it's with economics, right? So we, we, we are having this conversation around false narratives, the fact that immigrants bring crime, the fact that they don't, um, they, they don't contribute to society, the, the 
facts again in in quotes that they take your job these are not facts they're just lies absolutely i think there's a problem with people finding simplistic solutions to complex issues Mm. um and you know books like yours from what i've understood i've done a really good job of trying to break that down but it's like how do you get that to the hands of the right people how do you explain that to people in ways that are simple how do you counter those kind of narratives and that's the challenge we have i suppose as a community Mm. how do we clap back so you know this is part of the solution, having these conversations amongst ourselves, how to tackle it, but it's also taking the fight out, like you're saying, organizing, mm. you know, changing narratives. Um, and that's that's a difficult thing to do, it takes time. It, it is, mm. I mean, um, there is an amazing uh, member of European Parliament called Majid Majid. He's, yeah, he, yeah Majid. exactly. He, ah. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a refugee, um, immigrant, Muslim, all of the, he, he ticks the boxes of a lot of the uh, um, characteristics of what people have negative stereotypes for. But then he became mayor and now he's a like member of European Parliament. Mm. You know, when we keep pointing to those examples of how refugees, immigrants, people who are different come in and make our lives better and, and help enrich our lives, that's a really good way to sort of tackle mm. those stereotypes. Mm. But then also to just... I think we we should be able to just call lies out when we hear them, Mm. you know. Immigrants are taking our jobs. No, they're not. No, they're absolutely not. Um, And we need to be able to have those conversations. I can say one point Mm. about that. There's a lady from Channel 4 News who did a big talk about this. This is a big story a few weeks ago Mm. in saying, you know, to what extent journalists and people in the media ought to call people liars? Well, I think there's a convention or a um, understanding that there's this kind of polite decorum with political interviews with important politicians but at the same time you know we need to go we need to go full packs man on these you know yeah you call this shit out man yeah uh, and not not just like like just be overly polite about it you know mm. so okay i mean realistically between the two of you do you think that news i'm saying news anchors do you think journalists have not the right, but the um, they need to call people out on these things. I think so, yeah. I mean, in writing this book, and the book is far from neutral, mm-hmm. do you think that people in the media should take, not this exact tone, but come from where you're coming from, i.e. really try and push against the false narratives? Absolutely. And there's a way to do it, to be neutral. Um, and, and this is why I said there is a perfectly legitimate conservative, and I, I don't mean conservative as the party, but I mean as, you know, a theory, notion to immigration. It's perfectly legitimate to have that conversation. So, and like I said, if we said we were going to take in 3 million and we took in 5 million, then that's a question you can ask to a politician without being pro or anti-immigration to just say, you promised the British people we're going to take this amount of money, I'm sorry, this amount of people. Why have we taken more? That's that's a question that you could ask. Mm. But then if the answer is something that's just like weak sauce or a lie, you should be able to call them out on mm. it to just say, well, this is this is a lie. You mm. can allow politicians, of course, to have their point of view where mm. they're like, I believe this. That's fine. That's your that's your point of view. But if you're going to say we are we did this or we're doing that and you don't, then that's just lies and we should be able to say 
well, actually you said this in an interview like two weeks ago and now you're saying this. So w were you lying then or are you lying now? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And I think the thing is that we know politicians are lies, you know, and, but you're right. This, we don't, we don't call it out as we see it. Another thing is that we accept that a lot of the time. Mm. We accept the lies and, you know, but it's so dangerous and pervasive. Like you say, you know, if you was on the topic of refugees, the rhetoric around refugees and people seeking asylum, you know, human displacement is a massive issue we've talked about on this podcast. Mm. Um, and, you know, that type of populist kind of now language and behavior from politicians actually deeply detrimental to people's well-being, you know, human lives. So yeah. it's like one thing to talk about microaggressions and, and racism and stereotypes, how they affect us, hashtag first world problems, you might say, mm. but there are deeper, much more damaging consequences of oh, this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, refugees from Syria, for instance, you mm. know, I mean, we live in a country where if I wanted to say anything disparaging against the queen and does this podcast, I can do it. Mm. Like in Syria, you can't, you, I mean, fundamental human rights are being abused and people are taking the most perilous journeys across the Mediterranean Sea with their children, their, their doctors, their lawyers, their accountants, their businesswomen, and they're fleeing and coming to countries where they're taking the worst jobs possible. And we still treat them as if they're just an inconvenience to mm. us. Mm. Um, and I think the point about, for us, it's, you know, our problems are, are different for their problems, but I think just decent humanity where it's like, this woman fled her country because her husband was killed by the president's forces because he was, you know, he wanted gay people to be able to get married. Like mm. that's, that's insane that this is a thing that people have to leave their native land for. Mm. And so I think, you know, no, no matter what your views on immigration are, just some human empathy. <laughs> there we go, it's back dangerous, on this. Dangerous, because, slippery slope. I mean, because, I mean, you mentioned here that, do you think that you have more empathy because of your background? Because I personally do. I think, I and mean, we've, we've discussed this before, we're talking about human yeah. displacement, the yeah. idea that we empathize, you know, as I say people of color, but as, you know, people from the black, yeah, yeah, especially black community, mm. the Asian community, we can see ourselves as these people who are trying to get from Syria. We can see ourselves as people who are making the trans-Saharan, you know, migrants, other people who are the, you know, Afro African people who are currently going from, is it South America? People who are migrating from South America all the way to Mexico and the US, you mm. know, that arduous journey. And we can, we have an easier time putting ourselves in those places. You know, we can see ourselves in those spaces. And do you think that is, do you think that that is the limiter? I mean, I, this pod, this book isn't about sort of immigration or anything, but it's just, it's the one thing that mm. I, I always want to get people's views on the idea that empathy is a product of your experiences. I 100% agree. I think if you, if you have come from, uh, if you've come from a privileged background, it is difficult, not impossible, but it's it, it's not as easy to get where people are coming from than if you have been in a similar situation. And I think for people of color, for people from low-income backgrounds, from just like anyone who have come from a non-privileged position, because you know how hard it is to work for something, because you know 
how your color or how much you earn or your sexuality or your gender is always five feet in front of you. And, you know, you and I were talking about this, about, you know, when I, when I was in Nigeria, I, I didn't have to be black. I just had to be me. I was just me. But when I moved back to England, because I wasn't just surrounded by black people, me being black became a thing. And so whenever I, I did things, they're like, oh, am I doing it because I'm black? Or, you know, am I not doing it because I'm black? But I think because people who have been through this kind of discrimination can understand where you're coming from, it certainly makes it easier. Not impossible, because you do have some amazing allies out there. Um, but I, I do think it's easier. It's just easier to know what the struggle is. And my last point on immigration, just to end on like a high note of it, mm. I thought it was really, really cool. So as I think the earliest memory I have, one of the earliest memories I have um, is being in Ghana and seeing people send money to each other, like, like credit mm. to each other. Like you, if you've got five pounds of credit on your phone, you can send that to or have many. It was when cities were like, 16,000 or something like you send a lot um, to people and you talked about the remittances of um, sort of um, immigrants back to sort of their home countries countries they've migrated from where their families are from Mm. and the fact that it's so much money um, let's see if I got the number got the number here and also you will notice which country is the highest Um, going to say (laughs) I mean, look, Nigeria isn't really a country. It's like a collection of states, more than anything. So, you know, whatever. Just had to reignite the war. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, oh, yeah. So, uh, in over $24 billion in remittances were sent from the UK to other countries in 2015, with over $3 billion going to Nigeria. Experts estimate that if rich nations around the world were to admit enough migrants to expand their labor force by just 3%, the world would be $356 billion richer, not only because of the productivity gains in the rich countries, but because migrants send so much money back home. So immigrants working the rest actually relieve the burden on the foreign aid budget, which was ironically one of the complaints of the Brexit Leave campaign, complaining that we were spending too much money subsidizing other countries. And I think... (laughs) And I read that, I was like, I I hadn't put the two and two together. Mm. I was like, oh yeah, I know, you know, family and stuff send money to other you know, other countries and stuff. Mm. And I know they're saying, Brexit are saying that, you know, we're taking too much money. Uh, we're giving too much money to immigrants. I'm like, wait, the two are connected? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So this is like, a, that was a massive aha moment. And that's incredible, right? That idea is it, incredible. It, it is. And, and another thing that from that research that I um, figured out was the fact that when people send money, you know, back home, it's not so that they can come to England. It's so that they can be back where they are having a better life. Like, So my mom's moved back to Nigeria now permanently. She's like, well... Lucky you. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but she's just like, well, you know, my friends are still there. My family is still there. You and your sister are grown. And like, one, yeah, I'm going going back to Nigeria. And she, she's she gone back and she's like perfectly happy there. So again, this kind of notion that immigrants just come here and just loot the country and then, you know, just live off the spoils. It's just not true. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So, um, back onto a away from immigration, but into a far lighter topic. Um, you're dating a white American woman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, has she ever used the word nigger? No. You sure? Yes. Not even in bed. <laughs> <laughs> what weird sexual things are you into? Just saying. I'm, the, I'm Pax Manning. I'm asking the questions. You're asking the hard questions yeah. and I'll give you the hard truth. No. Okay. No, because you, I mean, you know, you do talk in here in this book. Uh, one of the things that I guess happens to me the most is, I say to a lot of us the most, it is, mm. can I say the word nigger? Mm. Can white people, can people who aren't black say the word nigger? Oh, why not? Yeah. We're getting too PC. Yeah. Expand on your experiences with that, please. <laughs> and let's see if they align with my own. <laughs> I mean, one of the most prevalent times that you will hear people who are not black saying that word is uh, in songs. And their rationale is always like, well, it's in the song. It's in the song, so I should be able to say it. And I, I say to them, it's, to me, it's always very weird when we, we have conventional norms around society that we stick to, but when it comes to race, we immediately forget them. Like if, if I were to meet 
your mother, for instance. It's no. <laughs> a terrible <laughs> idea. <laughs> I'd, I'll call her auntie because yeah. that's our social mm-hmm. norm. You'll call her mom. I'll call her auntie. I'm not going to call your mom mom and then go, well, why can't I call her mom? You get to call her mom. <laughs> like, <laughs> Is that weird? Because I do that. I mean, no. When, <laughs> when um, like families, has your mom asked your girlfriend to call her mom? She did my ex-girlfriend. She hasn't met my current yeah. girlfriend. Yeah. Now that I find, I'm like, mm. do you know what I mean? Yeah. You're when just you, like when it's... you call your teacher mum by accident. <laughs> that shit haunts you. <laughs> <laughs> you kids don't forget that shit. <laughs> so, so your mum is not going to get your girlfriend to call you. Has she gone to Nigeria? No, no, no. Ah, yeah. There we go. She's yeah. That. There we go. But so there are these, these societal norms that we, you know, I, I call my girlfriend, honey. I can't go to work and call my manager, honey. And we know this because it's like societal norms. I can't say, oh, but I call my girlfriend, honey. Why can't I call you, honey? So this like, oh, you get to say it. Why can't I say it if it's in the song? It's like these rappers are talking about their experience, their unique experience. And this is the only way they could make money they can make something of themselves like people were like imagine if jay-z wanted to do opera would he have honestly, ever- <laughs> honestly have you seen the way his hair's going he's gonna do anything no because considering what he's doing with the nfl right now <laughs> i can entirely see him doing a sidestep into opera <laughs> <laughs> but they, they just ah. wouldn't have taken him seriously and we know this because like where are all the black opera singers like we talked about dance earlier where are all the black ballet dancers so mm. in order to make money in order to be successful these individuals had to like stay in their lane which was apparently rap and hip-hop mm. and so they're speaking about their experiences and it's a thing that again if you haven't if you haven't had the experience of having someone call you this word, that is quite possibly the worst thing that you could say to a black person. And to just you wanting to trivialize it just so that you can get to say it in a song, I'm like, mm, like get over yourself. And there's something that um, Ta-Nehisi Coates said, which I put in the book where he said, actually being a white person and being a fan of hip hop and not being able to say that word gives you an inkling into what it's like to be black. Because being black or a person of color, BME, is to go through the world, not being able to do what other people are doing. Mm. It's going through the world, having to face, you can't do these, you can't do this. And it's so funny to just go slightly into geopolitics, just ever nah, so nah, slightly. We love. We love, we love. I was trying to not put it on you. I was like, ah, oh, I don't want this guy. He's written like 12 chapters <laughs> and, and a lot of references. I don't want to be there like, oh, hey, just talk about immigration. But cool, take back geopolitics. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the development of a lot of white societies versus a lot of uh, black and Latin societies, black societies has been based around things you cannot do, whereas white societies have been based around what you can do. You could go to Africa and go, okay, I, I, I want that now. And Africans are like, hold on, no, this, this is our land. And you go, no, it's part of the British empire now. You know, it's the same thing in, in America where you go to Native Americans and go, we're now American, you guys are not. And Native Americans go, but we've always been here. Like, no, we're going to call you Indians. You mm. know, it's always been based around being able to do what you want and say what you want. Whereas for us, it was, you can't drink from that water fountain. You can't go to that school. And so I think being 
someone who loves hip hop and loves rap and not being able to say that word does give you a sense of what it's like to grow up and say, okay, these are things that you cannot say because you're not part of that community. So you have an entire chapter, not just on people, whether or, you know, whether they can or cannot say the word nigger. Mm. Um, and if they should not listen to Chris Brown, which they shouldn't. And the fact that you love Kerry Washington um, <laughs> and the fact that no sensible black people will be caught at a heavy metal concert. The fact that you haven't listened to baby metal makes me sad. But no, there was one bit that I think stood out to me, the psychological experiment mm-hmm. um, talking about, or the psychological experiment um, looking at everyday bias within, I think it's knife crime. So mm-hmm. maybe you can explain a bit more about that. Yeah. So, you know, Knife crime has become a staple in the narrative of black communities where it's like, you know, knife crime is just being <laughs> fucking chicken boxes. Oh, I mean, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to that as well. <laughs> this whole idea of that, like, like black people are just the ones committing knife crime where like you can debunk that so easily. First of all, if knife crime was synonymous with being black it means you and i won't be here on this podcast right now we'll be out committing knife crime it means my 90 year old grandmother will be out committing knife crime it means barack obama will be out <laughs> committing knife crime barack obama on road exactly can you imagine can you imagine can you imagine this whole idea that it is just black people committing knife crime second of all one of the most perilous instances of violence was in um, in Glasgow, <laughs> in Scotland. So where it's got significantly um, fewer black people than in London. So how do you account for that? And then the whole idea of, okay, we're going to try and appeal to this community by putting progressive messages on chicken boxes because we know black people love chicken. It's just the dumbest thing. Like you would not try and solve the cocaine problem by putting messages on golf clubs no but the thing is what this book when did it come out june this book came out in june so you'd had the edits done like gone to press in like what january february yeah so we're talking about um chicken boxes uh having what can essentially be described as stabby stabby home office fan fiction yep pretty um, much like written on them um in order to dissuade people Mm. uh from doing a knife crime it's ridiculous (laughs) and the fact that your book not predicted it but you know your book has gone out Mm. you've written it in general and the fact that this thing happened like happened again and again shows that it it just it just shows how that stereotype is just it's so in the mind of people that when this pr agency pitched it to the home office they were like oh yeah crimes committed by black people black people love chicken so yes let's let's do that it's 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 absolutely shows a complete lack of awareness absolutely Um, yeah and if you're talking about knife crime i mean there's recent statistics just from two days ago showing that you know domestic violence is reached is reached a five-year high and you know that's where a significant amount of knife crime actually takes place Mm -hmm. it's like issues like that but that's not a sexy news story exactly that's not that doesn't appeal to people's uh uh, people's big bigotry you might say you know um but it's you know it's completely um, it's not a very pragmatic way of looking at the problem, is it? It's a terrible way mm. of looking at the problem. And mm. the thing is, when you look at all of the perpetuators of uh, of knife crime, 
the thing that they have in most in common isn't the color of their skin. What they have most in common is um, they've come from uh, a broken home and been expelled from from school and has had society essentially give up on them. So those are societal problems. Those mm. aren't race problems. And you know what I always tell people as well, particularly people who aren't black, especially people who are white, actually, because I say to them, you should be pissed as well because it means that they are not tackling this problem that also affects you, mm. right? Mm. They're not tackling this problem. They're making it a black problem. So all of the young white youngsters who fall into that category from a broken home, expelled from, from school, have not got options. If they're white, they're just being left behind. Mm. They're just being gone. They're, they're just being said to, well, I'm sorry, it's a black problem. So you guys are on your own. Mm. So, and it, it's, it's no surprise mm. that when you look at the agency that advised the home office on this, there's no black people. There was like one black person. I think she mm. was a, a intern and they had like three dogs. So they had more dogs than they had black people wow. in that agency. And That's it's crazy. Like, yeah. This is, this is why we're in this problem because mm. you hear the stereotype and you have no one to tell you this is not actually the way it is. Absolutely. I, I think, yeah, you're right. That office, that agency could have, that's that's like a perfect example why you need diversity yeah. in these elite organizations and institutions to help kind of break down the nuance around these issues and just show you know what it's not a black or white problem it's just you're right it's a problem of society mm. and the longer we neglect that or the longer we just try to brush that under the table then the the more the problem pervades and becomes even a larger problem isn't it it's like going to the dentist like you say right yeah, yeah. and and, and people who have options don't choose knife crime. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're both black. We have options in life. You, you didn't go, oh, I've now finished my PhD. So I'm going to go stab somebody, you know? Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. You might have felt like that. <laughs> <laughs> right, my job prospects are pretty slim right now. All right. Just did a corporate comedy gig. Essentially, it was me trying to hand out my CV for 10 minutes. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> can't do road, <laughs> can't do drug design. <laughs> no, but I think in the book, something that was really interesting is uh, the experiment reported in everyday bias. So Remind I, I love how you're like, ooh. Yeah, I was like, oh, that, sounds, I that, that sounds great. <laughs> nah, so uh, an experiment, no, there we go. So uh, there was an experiment uh, reported in everyday bias that you spoke about in the book, um, really talking about, again, society's bias as evident from the name. So the report showed that when people were showed a photograph of two white men fighting, one unarmed and the other holding a knife, they then showed another photo, this time of a white man with a knife fighting an unarmed black man. When people were asked who was armed in the first picture, most people picked the correct white man. Yet when they were asked the same question about the second photo, most people, both black and white, incorrectly said that the black man had the knife. Mm -mm. And I guess that fits the narrative that people have, the idea that black people are you know, predisposed to knife crime. Yeah, and it's not even just the kind of racial element to it. It's also just what we're exposed to. You know, growing up, if all you see are black people being gangsters and drug dealers, and, and that's your window into the world, 
you just grow up with that. You know, I was, we were having this conversation yesterday with my friends who, uh, who are American and they were talking about how Oakland in California has changed. And we were talking about how it was similar to like Brixton and how Brixton has changed and how now it's a very fancy place to live, oh. very expensive. Yeah. My yeah. mom feels the same way about Tooting. Tooting, Streatham, yeah. all of these areas. So I took her to Tooting and she went through the market. She was like, what? Where's my fish man? Yeah. Look <laughs> at those fish. Where's this? What? Uh, South African style deli. Huh. <laughs> huh. Yeah. It's, it's changed completely. But the narrative around Brixton was always, it's dangerous. It's, you know, it's scary. And I, I grew up in Streatham and would venture into Brixton. I, nothing ever happened to me. You know, nothing. Nobody even, I would just more I, I don't know i was just myself there and you shouldn't have to explain it it's exactly like, it's like someone explaining oh well when i was in soho i <laughs> i didn't actually feel unsafe it's like it's stupid like if i'm on the 57 bus i'm on the bus like leave me alone exactly it's not, i don't have to explain every borough i go through i shouldn't have to explain every stop mm. i step off at to i guess to humor your your biases about yeah a people a location anything yeah and the you look at the, as we, we just talked about, you know, the, the reasons why communities who are neglected the most turn to crime is just because they don't see any other option. People with options don't turn to crime um, because they, they've got a lot invested in their own future. And so I think another thing that we as a community can do is just empower each other to to show that there are always options for us, um, you know, to, to show that we don't have to go the traditional route of, oh, well, if you're not a doctor or a lawyer, things are so bad for you. Do you think, and this is something that I always feel weird about because of where I am now and the fact that, you know, I've done pretty, you know, I've done pretty well. Um, the idea that you have to be a role model, the idea that role models need to stand out and you see this online a lot. Mm especially and it seems like people are pan it, it, there's always a subtext of like oh there i'm one of the good ones yeah and and I, I feel a certain way about this idea of fighting back from um you know, people who have generally been downtrodden and who don't have opportunities in life and so who turn to crime the only i guess the, the only answer to that is role models just don't show them good role models <laughs> and then they'll get better yeah i i completely understand that i mean you know, I, I wrote a book about race and all of a sudden I'm now the race expert on yeah. things. And, and it's odd because, you know, as you've read the book, a lot of it is just based on my life. Now, there's a research element to it, but a lot of, I put a lot of personal stories in there because I think that's what people can relate to. You know, people can relate to stories about um, uh, me uh, and my partner being different races. People can relate to my family being scared the first time I went into to the pool. And so I personally don't set out to be a role model, but if I can make someone's life better or give someone hope, I'm, I'm happy to sort of wear that badge mm. because for me, I wish I had a book like this growing up. I wish I had someone who looked like me and had my background and was successful come to my school to talk to me 
So I go out and speak at schools a lot. Um, for free? For free, yeah. Okay, just check. <laughs> yeah. I, I, the Ghana enemy is actually a bit annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> no. You just bought, you wrote a book for a year and now you're speaking for free. You put your words to paper with your book advance and now you, you are giving out words for free. You are a fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Nigerian part of me is cringing as well. <laughs> but um, I, this sounds a bit cliche, but I, I really do think that our children of the future. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. I just, you know, people often ask me, they're like, do you think we could solve racism or do you think it's going to get better? And I say, um, and this is a kind of a quote that I stole from Erica Alexander, like the past is painful, the present precocious, the future will be paradise. And so I think now, probably not, we're just way too deep into it. But I think if we can reach the younger generation at such an early age, because like kids aren't born racist. Like it's just, you, that's shit you learn. I love how there are so many videos out there of like kids aren't born racist. Look, here's a white child and a black child hugging. <laughs> yeah. Racism is over. I'm like, no. <laughs> no, no, it's very much real. And actually what that proves is how we are ruining children. Because yes, when they're kids, it doesn't matter. But by the time they become adults, it, then they're like hateful. And so I spend a lot of time with, with children and I definitely don't want anyone to live their life the way I've lived mine because I've made tons of mistakes. Um, I wish the man death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like an angry 14 year old. <laughs> angry 14 year old searching for gods. I know, I know. <laughs> and I just, uh, you know, I, a lot of things that I go and speak to, to kids about uh, are just about thinking differently because mm. I don't think going to troubled children or children maybe from a difficult background and just saying there's hope is gonna help. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's peace. I'm now gonna go back to my free Google lunch. <laughs> but it's just Did about- say free lunch? Yeah. <laughs> I went to Google recently. You guys have got free, near St. Pancras. Yeah. You guys have got free lunch. Yeah. Like they're trying to keep people in. So people don't leave. Yeah. It's like so you come free. in, you eat for free and it's yeah. lovely. You know, well, I mean, you're based here, so just swing by. Swing. We're Listen, just in Tottenham Court Road. It's no. <laughs> giving you that whole episode of Simpson where Homer is all the food. You have to kick him out. Like. <laughs> but back to you inspiring children. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I just tell them, just you can think differently. So for instance, growing up, I was really, really, really into science, but my parents were always like, lawyer, 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 lawyer. <laughs> and I sometimes wonder what my life would have been like if I had pursued that like scientific route. Um, I was always into acting, um, but my parents were like, what's the likelihood of you actually getting a job as an actor? Look on TV, do you see any like black actors? And I was like, oh, okay, wow, really got to go with this profession then with this law thing. And so I, what I say to children is look, there is this notion that you can be whatever you, you wish. And like, let's be realistic. <laughs> it's somewhere in between doctor, lawyer, engineer. Yeah. And you can be whatever. You, there's some a nice medium. There is a nice medium where it's just like, you know, it is, it is tough out there and it's going to be tougher because you're gay or a woman, a uh, person of color. It's going to be tough. But if there's something you're passionate about, there are ways to pursue it while still 
making money. Like I really, really wanted to write a book. I really, really love money. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing. Like, you know, money talks, money makes the world go around. And so my passion was writing this book and I could have gone, okay, I'm going to take some time off work to write this book. Or I could have said, actually, I really like having an income. So I'm going to work and write this book and it will take longer and it will be hell on my, you know, my personal life, um, on my physical fitness. But I I really want to be successful and I really want to do this thing. So I wish to say to kids, there's not only one way of achieving your dreams. Mm. There, there are lots of different ways. I think when we're talking about the society that we live in, I know you have lots of experiences with society, you have lots, lots of experiences with police. Mm. I suppose my question to you is, do you trust the police? And now I'm asking you that as someone who was once... 14 mm-hmm. then and then to now how do you what have your experiences with the police changed have they been positive have they been negative like your mindset on it on oh. them on the sort of how police interact with society paxman style paxman the paxman in um Got honestly it. no i don't trust the police um even as a professional like even as a professional mm. I don't trust the police because as a institution, there is just so many problems and I don't see, I don't see them being active in the community. I don't see any outreach into the community. So I just see them as an arm of enforcement and an arm of enforcement that has been targeted specifically at people of color. Mm. So it is very hard for, and then in researching this book, you know, I've got two chapters on on the police and, you know, black people are 40 times, uh, stopped 40 times, uh, stopped and searched 40 times more than than white people. And it's just 40 times more. And so for me, it is just as an institution, I see a lot of enforcement, but not a lot of outreach. And so it's very difficult for me to trust them because I, I, the instances of abuse have been so prevalent that I just think, no, you, you, first of all, that's wrong. And second of all, you've not done anything to earn my trust. Mm. So yeah, it's a sad thing to say, but I don't trust the police. So how, what about you, man? Cause you're Asian. I don't know if there's any major difference. Mm. I've never been Asian mm. in how- Have you, Did you say you've never been Asian? Never been Asian. For real? For real? <laughs> look, Is that a choice or? Look, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't downloaded that DLC yet. So <laughs> all right. know, I'm stuck with the base black skin. Oh, you know, as we all know, humans were originally black mm. and being white is actually, it's, it's a evolution in order for you to be able to absorb more vitamin D at a higher like longitude, latitude, mm, latitude, mm, maybe mm. the northerns. I love vitamins. You know, man. <laughs> oh, actually, yeah. When this podcast is going to go out, black people, dark people, take your vitamin D supplements. <laughs> take your vitamins. This is actually really important. Take your vitamin D supplements. Ricketts is no joke. It's true. <laughs> All right. How do I feel about police? Well, it's, you know, obviously in my line of work, I work a lot with police directly mm-hmm. on stuff. Um, and when you have that interpersonal relationship, it's very different to being police. Mm. Um, 
which has also happened to me. You know, I've been stopped in the street and, you know, I remember one time we were on a night out and then these two meat wagons roll up and they, they start questioning us and stuff and being very antagonistic. And I'm just like, yo, I haven't done anything, mm -hmm. you know? But it was that perception of what we could have done or what we have done. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think there needs to be more uh, community engagement and a lot more like kind of intelligence-led policing, yeah. which requires people who are in that community to police that community. To, to be to be the police officer of that community because ultimately a lot of it comes down to understaffing under under representation uh in certain areas and that can lead to distrust and animosity between the people who are perceived as enforcers and those who are the ones who are basically a victim of you know over policing so mm. complicated issue but i think ultimately yeah it does come down to microaggressions and stereotypes and you know easy solutions to complex problems um and together that causes a fertile ground for this kind of stuff i think mm. yeah yeah i one of the I, I think if there was a little bit more outreach to the community mm. i think it, it it would help but i just keep seeing these like own goals so um do you guys remember was it last year or the year before last where the police tweeted like ahead of Notting Hill Festival? Damn. With, oh, my is that what my you were just- my segue, go. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, oh, ahead of Notting Hill Festival, mm. we've confiscated X amount of drugs mm. from a place that was nowhere it near- was like, It was like, it was Southeast London <laughs> and Notting Hill was in and, <laughs> and it was just like, that's like, and I, I know, or I assume, that the intent is to say, you know, don't bring drugs to Notting Hill. I assume that's the intention, but it's just like, this is a festival <laughs> where it's for the Caribbean society and then the wider black community. Why would you actively antagonize? I like that you very politically said it's for the Caribbean. <laughs> I mean, let's, 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 let's be real. The, that's the origins of it. Let's, I can't try and claim Because people on social media are like, mad. Yeah, exactly. I can't try. If and I see one Nigerian black. <laughs> but is I mean, it is predominantly a, a Caribbean celebration. And then for us black people who are part of that wider community, it's like, that's just an antagonistic tweet and then it just and no one ever tweets that against like or something like that about like glastonbury or so and that's the thing you have like because i have lots of friends um who go to glastonbury you know i, I lived out in bristol for my phd so you know it's very close by and you mm. see people going and you there are so many drugs there yeah there's so like and i think you you even mentioned in your book you've got uh yeah, Boomtown. That's another one. I only learned about Boomtown recently. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's like a steampunk style. Get with the like, program, Alex. No, 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 it's mad. I would never go bastard. there. I would never go there. Listen, I know a ton of white people do a shitload of drugs. That's the thing. And they've never been arrested. And then you have, what was it? You have Creamfields, Creamfields Festival, which I really like because you mentioned uh, there are 137 arrests made at Creamfield uh, to... You said 2106? You mean 2016? Yes, that okay, was a yeah, typo. There's, so there's a typo in your book? I know, there's three typos. There? So the first one's on page 163. <laughs> if you find two other ones and uh, email- You get a free logic, book. You get, you get a free, like, a signed copy of the book. Yeah. But you said there are 137 arrests made at Creamfield's 2016 festival, a majority of which were for drug-related offenses. Given that only 70,000 people were in attendance, there would have to be 
2,935 arrests at Carnival to equal this. And the footnote is, uh, I've run a Google image search for this event and couldn't find even one black person. <laughs> which is true. I only learned about Creamfields this year. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's true. Like I was at, um, do, were you at Nottingham Carnival this year? Oh, no, not this year. No. So I was at Nottingham Carnival on, mon- on the Monday mm. and it was wild because I was with some friends and so I didn't have to go down like the riffraff. <laughs> uh, some of my friends live around there. Um, and they very graciously put us up for the day. And going through it and being able to, you know, going through to all the different sound stages, but then um, going up and being able to like be in a flat and stuff, you could see the police logistics, you know, you could see how they're moving about and you could very much feel the the presence of the police. So much so that when we were leaving um, late in the evening, you could see how not brutal but you could see the tactics being used. You could see how it's sort of like soft kettling mm. the way all these um, roads were closed off um, with very harshness. You're like, oh, hey, I need to get over here. Nope, go. It's like, you need to get over here. Nope, no, that uh, that tube station's open. Walk a mile that way. You get there and it's shut. You're like, mm. so it's, it's very antagonistic. To, and they say, like those tweets, oh, we're just doing it for your own safety. We're just doing it for your own safety. Mm. And so there is a... A very biased narrative there because you hear about Nottingham Carnival for a month leading up to it. Yeah. But you don't hear about Glastonbury, V-Fest, Creamfields, you know, all these other ones, Boomtown stuff. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, as someone who's been around for longer. Mm. Um, it's a very um, polite way of saying my ass is old. <laughs> <laughs> no, but as someone who's been around for longer and someone mm. who's lived in Nigeria and here, mm. like, how have you seen it change? How have you seen policing and the relationship between the police and the community change, especially in the world of, you know, you work in Google and stuff, mm. in the world of social media and the internet and all that. So when I was younger, it was like the discrimination, stereotypes, racism was just very overt. It was just like very, very overt. You're walking, you'll get stopped and searched. It's just, especially in Streatham where I grew up in. Um, so it was just, it was just very overt. Whereas now... I think it's a it's a little bit more covert, and I, I and I don't know if it is because things are getting better, and so maybe it's just not as out there because things are getting better, um, and I and I don't know why it is, but I've seen it get a little bit better to be honest, but I I think. I have very complex feelings about the police because obviously as an institution, they're meant to, they're meant to enforce order. And I like order. I like things to be okay. I like crime to be low. Um, but I, I can't help but realize every time there is an incident, it can't help but trigger me. And so it's just... Uh, I'm finding it very difficult to articulate because I have very, I have got very complex feelings uh, mm. uh, about this. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way in many ways in the sense that, you know, you're right, the police are meant to protect and serve us, but to what degree do personal beliefs and stereotypes filter through? It's not a black and white issue. No. Nah. Which is, um, you know, which is the whole point of this, isn't it? It's not, and why you need, why you need to write a book and I'm sure there'd be many more books written on this topic. It's, mm. it's so um, entrenched in his, that history of structural violence and, yeah. 
in so many different disciplines to help you understand this issue um you know it's not it's not something you can unpack in one book one podcast yeah um but it's an ongoing conversation isn't it amongst mm. us and people from other communities mm. so, so and you say that police are here to protect and serve i'm pretty sure that's like the american police or something yeah uh, isn't in the UK like the, the motto sensible policing or, or working together for a safe London <laughs> something like that um, and one thing last thing I'll say on police and I guess related to Notting Hill Carnival on that Notting Hill Carnival is the time that I've seen the most black policemen ever mm. because the optics would be terrible oh, yeah of course can you imagine just, yeah <laughs> all the black carnival goers and then just a sea a sea of white people white faces the optics would be so bad yeah um, yeah and it's just they should get all those black officers to go to Glastonbury. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now you know how it feels. Yeah. It's just like coming down real hard on everyone. What drugs you got? Paracetamol. <laughs> like, get in jail. <laughs> going to say we've come to the end of the podcast mm-hmm. um it's very hot in this studio and i'm not going to subject you to any more of this by <laughs> which i mean um, i made a very poor decision of like using cocoa butter this morning so i am literally <laughs> melting and i don't want to give the people yeah, but you don't outside- want to be ashy i know i don't, don't want to give the people outside this room like oh my god the black people smell of chocolate <laughs> i don't want to give them that satisfaction because then i have to throw this book in <laughs> to be fair i've taken it from my shoes as well so yeah okay, we're gonna leave this okay. room <laughs> but um uh elijah where can we get your book uh, you can get it in Waterstones, Foils. You can get it online at Amazon, Book Depository, just anywhere you get your good books. You can torrent it, you know. <laughs> Do not torrent that shit. I will come for you. <laughs> you can go to Open Audible. I will come for you. <laughs> and rip pay, that shit. Pay cash money. Cash. I've got Nigerian family to support. Pay <laughs> cash money. money. I need to send those remittances. <laughs> All right. Need to change. <laughs> and, you know, the, 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 change the conversation. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, um, Elijah underscore Lawal. Um, I don't know if my Insta is open, but um, I'm quite active on Twitter. So please just holler at me there. Are you doing any talks? Um, yes, uh, I'm actually going back to my um, alma mater. I'm going back to University of Kent. So I'm going to be doing a, a talk there. It is on the 12th of October, if memory serves. Um, I do lots of talks at schools. I just did an event coloring tech. So you can follow me uh, on Twitter and I'll always post details of what I'm doing uh, on there. But yeah, just talk to your friends about the book, get in discussions, get in debates. And um, yeah, I really hope you, you like the book. I think the one last thing I want to ask is you, you sort of wrote it in your book with everything that happens. So you wrote in your book, but I'm going to ask again with everything that the black community have gone through and continually go through with all the stereotypes, with everything, would you change it? Would you still want to be reincarnated as a black person? Every time, praise Jesus. Every <laughs> yeah. time, every time I, I love being black. I love everything about it. I love the way I look. I love my culture, my history, my heritage, you know, 
just uh, just uh what three nights ago i went to eight or five with a couple of my my friends and you know there was someone who was like edo and there was it was Ibo, and it was I just and was like nigerian music was on then we were Sounds eating like hell. rice so <laughs> we we're Sorry, eating you, that nigerian you, 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 were, you, were eating, you were eating is essentially pie and fan fiction <laughs> oh, <laughs> i was gonna invite you to the next one no, no, no. i don't want rice when i open the rice it's white in the middle <laughs> All right. Okay, we're gonna give you good jollof. We're yeah, gonna I give have you good, good jollof. <laughs> All right. My meat is fried. <laughs> All right. Yeah, the tomatoes are cooked. <laughs> okay, it's a very niche. We, 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 we'll continue this after the podcast. What about you? What about you, Alex? Would you be? Would you? Yeah. Yeah. I go through the experiences again and again because it's made me who I am. Yeah. I'd like to have more money. <laughs> of course. Like, yeah, yeah. That can be a no. I'm no, no but you know what I mean. And I don't think I would change it for anything. I don't think I could change it for anything. No. Um, so how, what about you? Would you be reincarnation? I'd come back as Aquaman. <laughs> a power of the seas and crush my enemies. That's a very <laughs> niche superhero. <laughs> I thought about this a great deal. <laughs> this is not a, this is not a uh, spur of the moment decision. Oh, okay. <laughs> you'd, you'd make a good Aquaman. It's fine. True. So, um, end of the podcast. Elijah, I mean, have you enjoyed yourself? I've had such a blast. It's been great. Thank uh, you for having me. Sahel, do you think you've learned something new? I always learn things. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been Alex Lathbridge. Uh, I've been joined by Elijah and Sahel. Say bye, guys. Yeah. Peace uh, out. Bye. You, was that? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah you've right. been joined by me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm slightly hungover, but I'm here. <laughs> this has been Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet? Bye. Nigerian mm -hmm. and um, I'm sorry <laughs> you uh, said you weren't going to start the wars well um, <laughs> you said you weren't going to no, start it, the wars it's because you you actively brought it up in your book there's <laughs> there's one bit in your book when you're talking about dating mm -hmm. uh, where you gave 12 rules the 12 <laughs> yeah about dating uh, someone in the African Caribbean community. Yes. And uh, let me see if I can find it. Oh, it doesn't matter. Look, the 12th rule is that you need to love jollof rice or get out. Yeah. And um, I feel as though you're asking, it's like asking someone to love Pepsi when there's Coke <laughs> with your Nigerian jollof. Yeah. Oh, okay. Can you edit out the bit where I said, I don't like black people taking <laughs> other black people down? <laughs> Because I'm about to destroy Ghana and Jalop now. Okay, go. <laughs> All rice is delicious. No, no, no. no. <laughs> look, look. Here's, here's the thing, yeah? Nigerian Jalop, one, there's a song about how Nigerian Jalop is terrible by Sister Deborah, Ghanaian. Beautiful. Okay. Two, Fake news. <laughs> two, if you look at the recent article on BBC, the BBC Pigeon website, you will yes. see the Nigerian... Nigerian jollof came last in the West African jollof wars. I mean, competition. So I've got two things to say about that. That's One, great. if you're Ghanaian, of course you're going to write a song about how Ghanaian jollof is, is better. That is fake news. Second of all, that BBC article was fixed. It was fixed. There's a conspiracy, y'all. There's a conspiracy. Listen, there's only one way to sell this. I got one bowl of jollof rice. And three, yeah, three, I've seen now Nigerian jollof in um, being sold in like ready packs in like Tesco and stuff. Oh Jesus! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a they proper like franchise. Like it, it's got a good design pack and everything, um, which makes it sort of 
concomital, no, equal to, you know, how like Uncle Ben's is a thing. Oh. So if, if your rice oh. can be distilled into a packet and sold, oh. what, what do you have? Okay, Nigerians, have? we ride at dawn. <laughs> this is it, this is it. Right. We, we ride at dawn. <laughs> I'm We're coming the sound effect for this. <laughs> Enjoy getting your what? I, how, I've got Alex's address. Don't worry. Books <laughs> <laughs> and everything. No, no. Enjoy taking your up to a hundred different ethnic groups in your in your incredibly diverse country that isn't monolithic at all. I know, uniting right? All of them. How, if Nigeria can't unite all of the states, how do you think you can unite? This isn't Independence Day. I'm not an alien. This is just about rice. It's a, but it's about jollof. It is about jollof. Nigerians will unite for jollof. <laughs> like the entirety of West Africa uniting against Jamie Oliver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This See, is, this is why if mm. you ever have a Nigerian and a Ghanaian in a room together.